This is the Engineering Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Avi Noda. This week's guest is Brian Scanlon, who's a principal engineer at Intercom. Brian has been involved with the evolution of Intercom's on-call process since its founding days, and this is the focus of today's episode. Brian and I begin by discussing the early days of Intercom's on-call process and the problems that emerged as the company grew. We then talk about some of the initial changes they made and how they eventually went about implementing a volunteer model. We conclude by talking about approaches to on-call compensation, the transferability of Intercom's approach, and some of the problems they're still trying to solve. Creating a good on-call experience is a challenge that nearly every company grapples with at one point or another. Brian has been in the trenches and has great insights to share, so I hope that you'll get a lot of value out of this episode. Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show, sitting down with me today to chat. Really excited for this. It's super to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited to dive into the, to me, novel approach you've rolled out at Intercom and the journey of how you implemented it. But I want to start with learning about the on-call process at Intercom before the change you worked on. And my first question is, how did on-call or support work before you ever had a formal on-call process? I think I saw you talking about how your CTO was the on-call team at the beginning. Yeah, I think like any startup or any company who's kind of started from scratch, you know, things just started off incredibly informally. And our CTO, uh, Kieran Lee, co-founder of Intercom, he was the operations guy at the start of Intercom's history. You know, it was him who was in the weeds of what originally was the Heroku setup and then later the AWS setup and was, you know, in the databases, in the caches, everywhere, kind of keeping things running. And over time, though, you know, things, Intercom was successful. The, the, the whole chat messenger thing took off and, you know, things kind of scaled and kind of grew around Kiron again, kind of pretty in, informally, though, at, start, at the start. But then we started building operations teams and other product teams. You know, there was no longer just the team, the R&D team or whatever, like individual teams all started uh, springing up. And, you know, through like a strong culture of ownership in the company, the teams kind of naturally gravitated towards doing their own on-call, like solving their own problems and kind of figuring that out kind of independently of each other. So it definitely wasn't structured or designed in any kind of serious way. It was kind of teams just taking on the work for the areas that they owned. And as Intercom grew and scaled and like the number of product teams went from one to two to three and four, et cetera, et cetera, the areas of ownership, the areas of stuff that teams would go on call for or would take responsibility for would, uh, would grow with the number of teams. And so there was no great plan there. It just kind of organically happened. The bad side was then, though, things were unevenly distributed. So you kind of had a bunch of core infrastructure, I guess, which was owned by the team kind of working with Kiron, I guess, as like the early kind of operations style team. And then there were some of the product teams as well who would end up just building a bunch of stuff and would operate it and would go on call for it. And pager duty rotations were set up that were 24-7 and people would start to get paged for things that would break. And and then other teams wouldn't as well. They would just like build a bunch of stuff that really wouldn't page and stuff. That's interesting. And we'll get into the all the specific challenges that you guys discovered as you guys grew and scaled. 
I'm curious, like in the early days, the sort of informal on-call process, I don't even know if you guys were calling it on-call at that point, but like who was in charge of that? Was it like your CTO was kind of centrally overseeing the distribution of those responsibilities? How was that being led? Yeah, I don't think it was centrally kind of governed too much. Like I mentioned, you know, setting up PagerDuty and getting up, up and running for a team and um, hooking up a few alarms. Really, that was kind of the extent of this organization that kind of went into it. There wasn't a shared or common approach to things like run books or even like what a good alarm looks like or anything like that. So teams were largely left to their own devices or or would just do enough. They had a lot of other things to worry about in kind of early stage of a startup. And so teams kind of independently would kind of see what was working elsewhere, maybe have a few conversations with people, set up a few alarms and then go on call and see what happens. So there was no governance function. There was maybe some common techniques and stuff that that people would share and would kind of end up putting in place. Uh, But there was no centralized function other than maybe a bunch of conversations in the hallway about things. And I know maybe at some point in between just your CTO doing on-call and these product teams doing on-call, you also built sort of an operations team that was maybe supporting your CTO. What was the relationship like between that operations team and then these product teams that started to take on more of the on-call on their own? Yeah, that's an interesting question because it changed over time as well as we were figuring out like Intercom's culture and technical environment and architecture. So I guess in the beginning, to scale out the uh, operations function, we needed a bunch of people who were kind of more leaning towards the system side. And so we built an operations team and that was great for getting up to speed on scaling and resilience and making sure that we had the kind of availability and ability to get ahead of where the company was growing. We're going through kind of explosive growth at the time. And so there needed to be a lot of work put into scaling our our then MongoDB clusters or our AWS environment and and things like that. So a a lot of the on-call work did kind of fall on this kind of central kind of operations team who would effectively took care of a bunch of our core infrastructure, our shared infrastructure. As it happened then as well, we went through a few phases of discovery of figuring out what architecture is best for Intercom. And uh, when I joined Intercom, it was kind of with the understanding that we were we were going to get away from this Rails, Ruby on Rails monolith and start to get all grown up and professional and build out a bunch of microservices and get all of the amazing benefits from that. And But it turned out in practice that this didn't actually work for us. It, there were definitely many benefits and it can be very appropriate uh, in many environments to, to build like this and to solve many problems. But we had a large, a relatively large Ruby on Rails monolith anyway. And then when we built out additional services for new features and things, it turned out that our teams were no more productive or in fact less productive with these services. And also at the same time, the Ruby on Rails and both at the Ruby level and at the Rails level just became a lot more scalable. And we were able to run like what we considered to be like services that were higher throughput than we thought were possible previously in Ruby on Rails. And so over time, and as our culture evolved as well, and our architecture as a function of the, or as an output of the culture, we ended up falling back onto a Ruby on Rails monolith with 
strong amount of like centralized control or I guess like like a platform um, that where most of our teams don't run their own services and don't run a lot of independent microservices in AWS and whatever and build on top of the Rails monolith that was like well run and had great observability and uh, just like other things that that really aided the both the development and the operational process of, of running these things. So as those things kind of changed, uh, or as like we kind of figured out and felt out who who ran what at Intercom and what was the optimal architecture, you know, the responsibility for on-call kind of shifted around as well. And once we kind of knew that we were going to like maintain this kind of centralized well-run bunch of services that uh, that our teams run on top of we then decided to invest even more in this and really go deeper and get more out of it because the return on the work in those areas was was so high and so we ended up building teams to like specialize in say databases or our core software our front-end technologies and our, our cloud technologies as a platform group, really, for the, the rest of the, the organization to build on. And so uh, what ended up happening was, uh, for so for a few years, teams built services, were on call for those. Um, but then as we kind of centralized and evolved our architecture, we ended up turning off a bunch of those services, re-implementing them in our monolith, and not necessarily centralizing all on call for it, but more building on top of shared components and so the responsibility of on-call kind of shifts around to where we had product teams who are on-call for pretty much like the features, but then a lot of the, the underlying infrastructure and stuff was on-call by, um, I guess, a platform group. Well, I was cheering in my head as you shared all that because, you know, we have a lot of conversations on this podcast with leaders who, you know, they're using Kubernetes and microservices, and it's so complex that they're building really highly complex platforms on top of those platforms abstract all the complexity away from engineers. So I'm personally a big fan of Rails Monoliths. Uh, that's what we had at GitHub and a big fan of companies like Shopify as well. So that's awesome to hear. I've seen you confess publicly that you personally love being on call. Can you share more about what, why that's the case? Sure. I mean, when it comes down to it, I'm kind of a you know Unix systems administrator <laughs> by trade. I think when I was in college, I got into running Unix systems for as part of college societies. And it was kind of like we're talking around, say, 1997, 98. Uh, so the idea of providing the ability for people to run web pages and to participate in IRC servers and things like that. And that was all kind of fun. And uh, so it just started off really like my first introduction to doing anything serious with computers was providing services and building stuff for people to use. And uh, I just got into a knack of enjoying fixing things and, well, building things, I guess. My first job out of college was in kind of Unix technical support and kind of wanted to be a, a Unix system in when I grew up. And so and then as, as that kind of, you know, as you get out of the mode of just like building simple stuff or <laughs> as like, uh, I guess, the use of computer systems has scaled and grown. And, you know, I've got, had a lot of enjoyment or, or satisfaction and indeed like career growth through building and operating and being part of like larger and larger systems. And I'm not sure if I'm particularly talented at being on call, but I've done a lot of it. <laughs> and it's uh, I find that that's a very good way of getting half decent at something is to simply do it a lot. And, and so, but also I enjoy the impact of on-call work. It's usually where things start to break first or where you can see problems 
Um, and, you know, everything is like Charlie Major says, it's like a socio-technical problem. And uh, on-call is where you can uncover or start to pull some threads and kind of see like maybe where there are parts of your environments that have been underinvested in or blind spots in terms of features that uh, are being used in ways that you don't expect. And uh, I also get a, a lot of kick out of just fixing things for customers. Like it is satisfying to have impact in work and to do things that matter. And if, if you're on call and on the hook for fixing the things that are your customers use, um, that's pretty satisfying as well, being able to, you know, there's a, there's a real short loop in terms of like the time that you do your work and you can see the, the impact of it. It's pretty compressed when you're on call in a kind of a situation where something is broken or, or, or nearly broken. So I don't think everyone should have the same kind of obsession with on call that I do or or that absolutely everybody should kind of pin their career to it. There's definitely more than enough different kind of shapes of engineers and more different types of work around uh, that, you know, it's, there's there's plenty of other kind of stuff to do. But I've found it particularly fulfilling and useful in my own career as well. So prior to Intercom, I was in Amazon and I ended up building a reputation for being kind of half useful on outages and, and building a reputation through being a call leader and participating in their programs and helping out on on their availability programs as well. So, you know, as a gateway into having influence in an organization and being able to get stuff done and having customer impact and like selfishly just getting a reputation for uh, being able to get useful work done, uh, I found it pretty useful. And and so I've kind of kept that going and and tried to if, see how we can do it at Intercom and, and try and like grow, uh, not just do a great job of making that uh, making sure that we do a good job of on-call, but also help grow people's careers and make sure that it's a, a fulfilling thing for people who aren't just me. I completely agree with what you said about the the impact and you know, developers being able to see the cracks in the system, the socio-technical factors, like you mentioned. What's your advice for leaders who may be struggling to get their engineers feeling excited and motivated about being on call for the same reasons you just shared. What advice would you give to leaders to sort of convey that to engineers to get them excited? Yeah, I think it's really important to make sure that the work is valued, that it's not just seen as something that people do on the side or that is, you know, almost like just part of the job. if you're running services, you're running stuff your customers are, are, are building on top of, the delivery of those services is the job. And so the on-call work needs, and everything that supports the on-call work really needs to be an extremely high priority for the business. And that has to be recognized in terms of how leaders recognize the work, help prioritize the work. And it's a bunch of soft things and a bunch of actual real hard prioritization decisions as well. And you know, there could be money involved as well. So everything from saying kudos or thank you, say going into a holiday period and you know that there's going to be a bunch of people on call or if people have particularly crummy on-call shifts or there's a time of instability and um, stepping up as a leader to kind of give credit for that kind of work. You know, no one wants to see heroics, but there are times when it's like more stressful or more impactful than, than others uh, when this work is happening. And so as a leader... Just recognizing that people have can have a tough time or that this that the work is real can kind of help. But then there's all of the rest of the work that goes into um, really delivering effective services, such as building on top of solid foundations, being on top of alarms, making sure that like day to day operations work isn't entirely ignored and balanced against 
product development and new feature development. And as well, I think compensation and really paying out either in time or in dollar amounts for the time spent that people do on call. Uh, that stuff is real as well and is reflects the real commitment. Sounds like the takeaway here for leaders is one, if you want engineers to feel excited and motivated about being on call, recognize that work and make it feel important to the business. And number two, make it nice. <laughs> like you were saying, have solid foundations and processes. If on-call is just chaotic and stressful experience, of course, engineers aren't going to be excited about it. And so anyways, I think this is a really good transition into the next part of the conversation because I want to dive specifically into the challenges you guys started seeing. I think many listeners will relate to these and it'll be helpful to frame these problems before we talk about a lot of the improvements you made. So I want to first ask, and you alluded to it earlier, around what point in Intercom's growth did these issues start becoming really apparent? Yeah, so Intercom started up around 2011 or so, 2010, 2011. And so I joined around 2014. And I think I'd been at Intercom for maybe about two years in the kind of fast growing, spinning up lots of teams, spinning up lots of services kind of environment. and we really started to see things creak around 2016, 2017. So we were kind of out of that early stage startup and starting to have more established teams and having to have like lots of customers and kind of relatively on in in terms of uh, the maturity of the environment and, and the company. So I guess we're probably about six or seven years old. And the problems we had started to see, and I guess after this kind of explosive growth was one thing that stood out was we had too many people on call. So I mentioned that I was at Amazon before, and I'd seen some of the world's largest services be run by a lot less people. And so I was looking at Intercom going like, there's five or six people on call all the time, every weekend. Intercom's not that big compared to some of these services at Amazon that really had global scale, but only maybe two or three people on call for it. Uh, so that seemed disproportionate. Another thing was that we didn't have the same quality of on-call practiced by the teams and by the, the individuals who were on-call. So not faulting the individuals here, but I mentioned that it, on -call, the on-call burden was unevenly distributed. And so if you were in the kind of operations, the kind of core platform team, you knew that if you were on-call, you were probably going to get paged that weekend. That there's going to be some database that falls over, maybe some customers decide to do something surprising. And so you were going to carry around your laptop and make sure you were no more than 15 minutes away from being able to get online, you know, taking it as seriously as like an on-call shift in Amazon or whatever. But then there were other teams who, even in office hours and during active development, they may only get pages once a month or <laughs> even fewer, but they were still on the hook for responding to these things. It was still going to be their phone that gets called by pager duty or whatever. So this wasn't that satisfying. We could see that there was a uneven experience. And this une uneven experience as well was a barrier to us having fluidity in terms of how we uh, move people around the organization. One of the things which has, I think, contributed to Intercom's success is that we have been quite fluid in terms of team makeup and ownership. We reprioritize frequently and we there's a bunch of side effects. We do a lot of team renamings and people kind of move around a lot. But it's actually one of the things that allows us to kind of keep a lot of focus and make sure that teams are working on the right stuff and uh, with the right level of autonomy and not getting pulled in too many directions um, at, at different times. 
One thing you talked about at the beginning was that you had too many people on call at any moment. So I want to kind of double click on that and ask what you mean by that. And was this just because you had seven or eight product teams and each team had to be on call? Is that why you ended up with too many people on call in your view? Yeah. So I mentioned that we had an ownership culture and teams basically went on call for the stuff they built. And when we looked at the number of individuals who were on call, it was way more than I would expect for a company of intercom scale or size at the time. Comparing to my time at Amazon, there was global scale services that had fewer people on call compared to intercom. Um, And so the numbers just didn't make sense. It was like intercom, you know, it was successful and doing well, but also we were built on top of the cloud. We we were pretty resilient and uh, at our scale and complexity, we didn't really need that number of people to be on call. Also, the the burden of work was um, distributed kind of poorly or unevenly across the different teams. Some call some teams be fairly confident or would know that they would get paged quite frequently, especially at weekends and, and other times. Other teams would be paged quite infrequently, and this led to some teams really just not taking on call as seriously in terms of like carrying their laptops around with them all weekend and knowing that they had to respond quickly to things. And But other teams just knew they had to get on call and get online because if they didn't, Intercom was down. And so we wanted to have, uh, as Intercom matured and, and grew, we wanted to have a more consistent experience, especially for customer-facing features. Like, uh, you know, you just don't want it to be down to the almost chance of which team happened to get paid for a problem and make sure that the people who get online to respond to the problems are available and, and ready to do so. And so that was definitely one of the problems that we wanted to solve around the consistency thing was more like I also brought in kind of some baggage, I guess, from previous in my career of where I wanted on call to be something that people actually enjoyed doing (laughs) and wasn't something that like just happened to be attribute of something that was related to the, the team that they just happened to be on. And so we felt we could do a better job that way. That unevenness you described between the different product teams that were on call, I imagine that's just because some of the products were like your flagship products with the most users, just the most tech debt, things like, I imagine it was just a natural result of the distribution of users across those products. Uh, Yeah, and some some of the complexity in them. For example, our team that would be uh, in charge of email delivery, and they would interact with a lot of third-party services. They had uh, some fairly complex queuing systems and like their own databases to process this work. Uh, and so that ended up just being a large amount of stuff <laughs> to that and, and all that stuff can break. Whereas, say, a team who would have, like, say, an equally important feature like the inbox that powers Intercom, that would be largely built on top of shared components and some of our core databases. Um, and so the on-call work there might be more in terms of bugs that customers might run into. But chances are they're going to run into them during business hours anyway. And so the, especially during out-of-hours times, the burden or the, the difference in the work changes dramatically. Yeah, another thing I saw you write on the post you published on Intercom's website was that you said there appeared to be a general level of level of tolerance for unnecessary out-of-hours pages. And I wanted to ask more about that because you just talked about how you wanted on-call to be a joyful, delightful experience. When you say that there was a level of tolerance for unnecessary out-of-hours pages, do you mean there was a tolerance amongst engineers or a tolerance from leaders in the organization of the demands they were putting on the engineers? 
Honestly, I think it was more the engineers <laughs> that what we saw was we had a number of pages, a number of noisy pages, things like CPU alarms for databases, maybe things that were put in place that aren't necessarily a strong sign or, or indicator of customer pain, but something that might be useful to kind of page on. And so we ended up with a lot of alarms and of mixed quality. And sometimes they're useful, sometimes they're not. But what we saw in practice was people were kind of happy to, like almost happy to get overpaged. Like they'd rather be paged on something just in case and take a look at stuff and then decide, actually, it's okay. We don't, no one needs to do anything here. And so maybe we had like a lack of confidence in the system where that was kind of built into the way that we were thinking about it or the way we were working at times. And maybe being in a high growth environment kind of contributes to that as well, where you don't necessarily know which way things are going to scale or going to break in the future. But it was definitely like if we looked on an individual team level, look at the the quality of the of the alarms, the necessity to wake somebody up for it, it kind of wasn't there. And but we also didn't see from the engineers like pushback on like uh, or the confidence maybe to turn these things off <laughs> or change the thresholds. You know, that's so interesting and almost sounds like to some extent it sounds like a good problem to have, but more so like a double-edged sword, it sounds like you had such a great culture of ownership that engineers cared so much that they they wanted that extra uh, sort of effort to, to be put into to on-call. But at the same time, as an organization, as leadership, sounds like you guys had concerns that this was unnecessary and people would get burnt out. And we'll, of course, talk more about that later. I have one more question about sort of the challenges you were facing at this time. Saw you also talk or write about the fact that at this point in time, only that original operations team that you talked about earlier actually had any form of compensation for doing on call. I'm curious, like, how did you guys arrive in that place where only that operations team had that compensation? Was it was just sort of an organic thing? That's where things evolved to. Yeah, it was quite organic. It was recognized by the team, by the manager at the time that that their work was significant, the workload was significant, and that we wanted to recognize it in a way which wasn't simply like time off in lieu, or to accept it as being part of the nature of the the team. So the additional compensation kind of came out of that need of seeing just this constant amount of on-call work that, uh, the teams do, that the team did, and recognizing that through compensation seems fair and kind of consistent with, I guess, our overall principles around compensation and recognizing how people work and when they should be compensated for it. But it wasn't something that we tried to solve across the entire org at the time, simply because of the, the distribution of work. Um, probably probably didn't need it. And you know, the other managers elsewhere kind of weren't screaming for it either. Well, on-call compensation, of course, is sort of a hot topic right now. And uh, we'll come back to it later. But I now want to shift to talking about the, the changes you made and how you made them. Really excited for listeners to get to hear about your approach. Uh, before we get into the actual changes you made, I think you know it's important to recognize that changes like this are hard to make at any organization. So I first want to ask you, how was the spark lit? Who said, let's change it? And was this came something that came from the CTO? Or was this a bunch of on-call engineers who got together? Like, who kind of initiated this to begin with? It did come from a number of sources. There wasn't just one individual. It certainly wasn't 
just me who or anything like that who decided that we need to fix this problem. Um, I guess there's a bunch of things in our culture that kind of led or enabled a bunch of this and kind of made us feel uncomfortable about the status quo at the time. One was we wanted to have high standards for how we work with each other and treat each other. And also Intercom did and still does have a high degree of respect for people's work-life balance. You know, we want people to work hard during business hours, get the work done um, and kind of consistently be able to produce high quality work rather than kind of do big crunches and get stuff out the door. So the idea that we would have a handful of teams or a few places in Intercom where we had this significant on-call burden um, that was kind of uh, really impacting people's lives wasn't satisfying. I wasn't consistent with that. So it wasn't a spectacularly high bar that we saw around this part of kind of shared work across the organization. And we also wanted to be able to move people around teams uh, pretty easily and not have to take into account their people's desire or or willingness to do 24-7 on-call, which can be pretty stressful and stuff. Um, And so we wanted to decouple the the work of keeping the intercom online with uh, where we deploy engineers to work on different parts of the company. So kind of keep maintaining the flexibility, being able to reorganize without having to think about on-call, that was a factor. Wanting to have a high bar and being consistent with, I guess, our culture as a, as a company as a whole, and then just having a high bar to the, the overall quality of the work as well. We wanted people to be doing the highest quality work uh, of their career. We wanted to be able to serve our customers well. And we were seeing a bunch of inconsistencies, the engineering experience, but also the customer experience of, of Intercom as well. And so it was clear we were going to have to do something to kind of level up. But we were, I guess, we felt ambitious enough um, and that our culture supported to do something relatively unique and centralized things and try and solve this together as a team, as an organization, rather than having a, a single team to, to fix it. So it sounds like there was a lot of obvious reasons why improvements needed to make and a lot of support across the organization. I want to just dive right into the the approach that you all came up with. And I'll, I'll just take some lines out of a, another interview you did. You, you said that, so you decided to create a new virtual team who would take uh, all out of hours on call. And that team was made up of volunteers, not conscripts, as you called it, or people who are just assigned. And engineers would rotate out in and out of this virtual team after around six months. So I want to first ask, how was this idea born and how was it initially shared? And what were the biggest concerns people had with this right off the bat? Yeah, we built a team of engineers to like a working group largely made out of engineers, but with support from leadership to work on the problem and to figure out and design a solution. And the working group itself was taken from across the company, across the organization. And so they had the scope to kind of think of this at an organization level rather than just on an individual team level. Um, and so the the idea of effectively turning that working group into the on-call team for Intercom kind of came naturally out of that. And to be honest, we probably kind of designed it a little bit that way to in, to get some some sort of outcome like that. And the ways that made it successful, I guess, are the, are the things that we started to do to kind of put things in place uh, was that we started small. We didn't try and take every single alarm. We didn't try and fix all the problems in one go. We just kind of incrementally took in alarms and responsibility and kind of rolled it out slowly. And that gave us kind of confidence and you know the ability to try and learn as we went along. So 
the, the initial design, if I've looked back at the original document, it's like we got loads of stuff wrong, but the, the original idea is, was roughly correct and the kind of problems we were solving and some of the main approaches have kind of stayed through and have served us well. Uh, so that ability to kind of iterate and not not get too stuck on the design served us well and and has ended up in making it sustainable and a success over time. Some of the problems that we were worried about was definitely like membership, ongoing membership of the team. Like maybe we'd staff it for six months and then everyone would go away and the team would fall apart. <laughs> so that was a, a risk. Also, the complexity of the environment, like not everybody knows everything in in any company, but especially not in, in in Intercom and especially not a company that was kind of growing and building more stuff. So we didn't know if one person would be able to do the job. Um, so that was something we would kind of have to learn. And maybe also there would be so much work to do that the we would make the problem worse, that the, the person who was on call, the victim, <laughs> would be so overwhelmed with an incredible volume that of pages and their life would be really impacted by it that it, it, was, it would be almost cruel to do that. So there are all big concerns kind of going into it. I'm curious to ask, what was an example of an assumption you got wrong? You mentioned you went back and looked at the original design doc for this. Yeah, we when we were rolling out, we kind of had a carrot and stick approach to uh, bringing alarms over from the teams. And we kind of suspected that Maybe we'd bring some alarms over. They might be low quality. Teams mightn't. And when we uh, get a page out of ours, we open a high severity issue, we document what was done, we follow a run book. And we then expect during office hours for the team to follow up and tune the alarm or fix the problem or like take some action. We were worried that teams wouldn't take any action, uh, that they would kind of tolerate <laughs> the, the annoyance or the, the interruptions that our, our volunteer team um, was was taking on their behalf. Um, but what we what we saw in practice was that teams were not just as responsive as if they were paging their own team, but more responsive. Uh, I think paging somebody out of ours who isn't on your own team seems to have like a higher degree of a higher weight or a more guilt involved. <laughs> and so we saw teams like very quickly kind of fix up their alarms, their run books, and really respond very quickly to the uh, the stuff that was causing pages to come out of ours. So that was like something that we thought we were going to have to do a lot of active management and really like you know using the stick of sending alarms back to the teams. But in practice, we just didn't. People really bought into it and were happy to to fix things up or like urgently fix things up to prevent people being paged out of ours. A question I would personally ask in a situation like this: the volunteer model, on one hand, sounds really nice. On the other hand, was there concern around the people who weren't going to volunteer, like that it would be unequitable in some way because not everyone would participate? Were there concerns around that? Not particularly. We had a core group of people who were interested. There's people like me who actually like doing on call, <laughs> and uh, and we also recognized that you know some people don't like that work, or some people have young families or other kind of responsibilities to, to their communities or or otherwise that um, just makes it pretty normal to kind of opt out or to to kind of want to do your work between nine to six and that's your work time and then not worry too much about the state of the servers or whatever um, most of the time. So there hasn't been any 
kind of backlash <laughs> against people who don't volunteer or or there being a perception that there's kind of people who do opt in or opt out or opt out. It's more that we recognize and encourage the kind of work. We we recognize that the work is real um, and it's something that kind of boosts, I guess, an engineer's reputation or contribution to the, the company more so than being something that detracts from people who don't um, opt into it. And you know, we have plenty of engineers who and like some of our best operational engineers who during office hours, like some of our best folks that hopping on problems and fixing them and stuff, just their personal choices are that they prefer not to do that type of work out of hours. And it hasn't held them back in any way in, in progression or in other ways of intercom. We've talked so far at a high level about how this new design and solution looked like. I want to dive more into the details now. Earlier, you talked about how having this sort of homogenous or simple monolithic tech stack is kind of an enabler for this type of a process and that that's intentional. I'm curious, you know, again, I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of these companies that are struggling to abstract away all the complexities of infrastructure from their engineers with tools like Kubernetes. At Intercom, you did mention there are specialized sort of systems teams, but how confident are engineers in understanding the full stack and even working with it? Sure. I guess one thing is that for our Edivar's on-call team, we don't expect people to be experts in all parts of Intercom. So the idea is you don't have to do a huge amount of training or have in-depth knowledge in every single data store we use or in every single feature. We consider the on-call engineers to be first responders, to be able to apply like first aid, to be able to triage. Um, and what that means in practice is follow run books and kind of use their under, whatever understanding of, of Intercom that they have to respond and in a way that like is fairly standardized and kind of well understood. If they can go further than that, great. Um, but we don't expect them to solve every single problem. So we set those expectations very, very clearly up front that they are first responders. Uh, we will give them the documentation they need to make some progress or make a good start or, or solve the common cases. Um, but that uh, that's as far as they, they have to go. We also then provide them with an escalation. So it started off quite informally at the start. I think it was like uh, a few managers maybe or a few leaders who were able to paged uh, by the on-call engineer in case something went really bad uh, or they weren't able to make progress. We've since formalized that into an incident commander program and is also another kind of volunteer out of ours oriented uh, program um, that ensures that we've got a consistent response in terms of responding to customers and uh, updating our status page and uh, making sure that, that large-scale events are well-managed. And so that's been formalized over time, but it's always been there as a way to help out any engineer uh, who's on call, who, for whatever reason, just needs almost like another pair of eyes or needs help escalating something or, or bringing in other people. We also have always had in the design that you should be able to bring in people who aren't on call like that. You know, there's going to be weird problems. You might need to bring in some uh, subject matter expert. Something goes wrong with Elasticsearch. You know, like we're probably going to have to bring somebody in who knows something about Elasticsearch. Or in, in other cases, if something's blown up that was being worked on that day, then we should bring in that person who like was working on the thing that day. So while we do have, I guess, the designed process 
of being able to, of having alarms going to an individual and then an escalation process in there. In reality, what we've seen is a lot of ad hoc management of who is brought in to look after an event or to, to escalate a, a, a something weird or something that uh, the on-call engineer can't fix is done. And we can it can be sometimes like whoever is online, whoever's in Slack at the time of an alarm going off can help out or in other cases, have to go to like individuals to kind of uh, fix uh, different things. But in the vast majority of the cases, the information that we give in terms of run books and the homogenous kind of setup of, of how most of Intercom features are built, uh, those two things combined are typically enough to make sure that the vast majority of alarms and, and problems can be resolved by somebody, by one individual. Uh, so someone that's accidental, it's like, part of it's just the nature of our architecture how we built what our culture is but also setting expectations kind of correctly and giving them ways to escalate as de-stressed or made it a lot more practical as well for one individual to go on call it sounds like just having a button-up process and good onboarding for on-call engineers is a big part of enabling people as you mentioned of varying levels of expertise to to feel confident in that role uh, I want to also loop back to the incident commander role in a moment, but first want to continue discussing just the, the overall on-call experience. You talked about how joining this team can sort of boost an engineer's reputation, this natural appeal and incentive to, to join. How do you actually logistically do this? Is there some sort of draft every six months and do people apply? And then is there a formal onboarding or training program? Is there someone leading that? What does that intake flow look like? Sure. So... In the past, it used to be that they somebody would just ping me on Slack <laughs> and um, I'd kind of add them to the list. It has changed. In the early days, we used to have a lot of meetings. Like We would do a weekly meeting of on-call. We would review every single issue. If you wanted to join the volunteer team, you would first join that meeting and see see the discussions and see by reviewing every single issue and by going through what the engineer experienced, we would kind of share with each other the kind of common cases. And you kind of see a lot of the kind of common problems through the eyes of the engineers who who had just responded that week to the problems. And that was kind of a big part of our onboarding process. It was kind of heavyweight. So it was like, would take a lot of time. It's a weekly meeting, got a bunch of engineers at it. And so we changed that up over time to, to have like a more self-serve process of where uh, wrote up materials and provided a way for people to kind of go through a little bit of a curriculum at their own pace. We never had a too too much of like a shadowing system or ran too many game days. We tried a few different things out, but honestly, giving people the opportunity to to ju- go fully on call when they're comfortable by following our self serve uh, training guides, I think that's largely worked out well for us. And um, in terms of staffing the team. We we always well we, first of all we were always worried that people would leave at a higher volume than people would join, but we always tend to have a bit of a wait list, and we're happy to take in people from any part of the of the company as well. Like if you're a front end engineer or a data engineer, uh, you know think of things in uh, in a full stack way in general in Intercom, uh, and we're happy for people to kind of maybe do a little bit of growth and kind of get their hands on different systems that they mightn't um, be too much in uh, day to day. But as long as people are kind of comfortable themselves and kind of conceded the nature of the work, we're comfortable with putting people on call in, in these different things. So we at the start, we made sure that we had people who were going to start. So we didn't announce the team and then wait for people to show up. We'd already 
kind of made sure that we had a, a full roster <laughs> of people who are ready to go. And what we have a lot of these days as well is people returning. So we'll move people out after six months and then people will come back to us a year later and say, hey, I want to do more on-call or whatever. And so we keep it keep fresh with uh, new people joining, but we also, uh, like, we, we're happy to have people kind of leave and then come back as well. Well, I was lo- laughing when you shared the strategy of uh, yeah, staffing the team before you announced that uh, you were recruiting for the team. But that's phenomenal and inspiring that you have a wait list now. I was going to ask that question. I was wondering if the team was growing proportionately to your NGORG or if participation had been more flat. So it sounds like it's been a huge success. I want to ask you about that incident commander role in this process. Can you, you alluded to it and described it at a high level, but uh, how did this come to be and how does that role work? Sure. It didn't come directly out of the, out of our on-call experience. We always had a, an escalation available for the, the engineer who was doing on-call. Honestly, the workload wasn't that high and the ad hoc approach uh, didn't really have many problems. What we did experience though in Intercom's history as we grew and the complexity of our incidents grew. Um, we got to the point of where we had some pretty complex, large-scale, company-wide events or av- availability-style events that needed a bunch of different activities to happen inside the company, a bunch of different teams to do a lot of work. And uh, we needed somebody to really take responsibility, be like a single point of contact and, and run the incident and run the event itself. Uh, so I don't think it's that controversial a design. Uh, it's certainly not not as novel as uh, I think the volunteer on call. In that I think the the idea of having like a, a single person who's managing and running an event is pretty common in the industry. And like I mentioned before, I, I participated in that in in, in Amazon um, there as well. So the the main purpose of the incident commander role in Intercom is to ensure that. You know, we've got the the right people uh, on the incident. We're not just waiting around for people to show up or um, we're not like waiting for people to check in with whatever work they're doing. And, you know, a lot of it is just management of what's happening, knowing um, who's doing what, making sure that people are coming back with what they've done on time and stuff. Um, and that the job of communicating internally is done well. That's, that's something that we found hard to just get right without a bit of organization and structure in place. That's updating the, our, our communications team, our sales team, our support teams. All that stuff is tricky when you've got an outage that you're trying to manage as well. Absolutely. Well, a, a sort of similar technical change that you described was moving your alarms and defining them in code using Terraform modules having those go through peer review. Can you talk more about this? And perhaps in layman's terms, just for people who aren't familiar with Terraform, what does this mean and what problems did it solve? Sure. So we were dabbling with infrastructure as code (laughs) back in 2017 or so, and starting to define bits of our AWS infrastructure um, using Terraform. And so Terraform has its own proprietary language of where you can basically state in configuration what the desired infrastructure uh, that you want to be created, whether it's a bunch of EC2 hosts or SQS queues. But also you can not just define infrastructure, you can really interact with APIs in any way and get things into some sort of desired state. And so we ended up building out or had the idea of building out our alarms into using Terraform. We'd suffered from some problems of where people were using UIs to define alarms that were paging people 
And, you know, it felt weird that we were, we would have such high quality controls over the codes that we would push. But then when it came to things like pretty critical alarms, uh, there was no oversight. People were, you know, you just go in and do whatever you want in the UI. There'd be no oversight or there'd be no review necessarily of what changes that were made in there. And so it was high, hard to keep a, a high bar and to keep things consistent across our endpoints or the things that we knew we wanted to monitor well. Also, like like the vet, two vendors that we were using for alarms at the time, Datadog and AWS CloudWatch, they didn't make it easy to be able to review at scale, I guess, the different endpoints and the different things that you wanted to have in place. So by putting this stuff into code, it allows you to run Unix text processing, processing tools against them. Just like, I want to grep for this thing. It can be fast, far faster to, to process. Uh, you can programmatically generate these things as well and make sure that they're consistent and always they always exist and run linting against them and make sure that they're up to like a, a relevant standard. So applying a bunch of the kind of code quality techniques and processes that we were using in our day-to-day in terms of managing our code base against managing our critical alarms as well. And so we ended up using it as a bit of a forcing function for our on-call team where we just happened to be doing this project around the same time. And to get an alarm over to the volunteer on-call team, we uh, made sure that the the alarms had to be in a certain place in a GitHub repository by forcing the peer review and even just using, say, the likes of code owners. We made sure that um, a centralized group of people were were reviewing these things and that they were quality controlling the run books that were attached to the alarms. And the run books were also checked in as part of uh, the same uh, code base. And so having everything in one place was this like forcing function for quality control, but also the act of having to move alarms from one place to another and just giving guidance, clear guidance to our teams around what a good alarm looked like meant that we ended up throwing out a lot of our alarms um, and the ones that remained were in a lot better health as a result of this, like having to push it through, uh, push it through and get it into this um, into this Git repository. It's like the least interesting part was putting them in, in GitHub almost. It was like the process to get them there just led to a far higher level of quality. Well, thanks for that in-depth explanation. I personally found that really interesting and insightful. Another topic that I know came up in your articles and discussions around this was the the on-call compensation, which we've already discussed earlier. And of course, this is a volunteer model that you rolled out, but you did decide to compensate engineers. I read something where you wrote that, at least at the time, had decided on a flat rate for each on-call shift of 1,000 euro before tax in Ireland. <laughs> and so I, I wanted to you know, ask about this. You know, first of all, is this still the compensation model. And also with engineers who aren't based in Ireland, is there adjustment of that based on geography? Uh, yeah, we'd just love to learn more. I'll answer the money question first. So we did have adjustments for US and UK based engineers. We didn't think too long about it, <laughs> to be honest. As in, we picked nice round numbers that just kind of roughly made sense. Um, I think a thousand euro for a foreign on call shift for without it being linked to the number of pages you get or without actually having necessarily to do work. I think it is like slightly generous compared to what I see elsewhere. Um, I think we did want to decouple it from the number of alarms you deal with or to not have it gated by, say, like an hourly rate or something like that. We wanted to recognize that 
if you're on call, that's disruptive and that you need to do things like carry your laptop around, change your weekend plans, not go swimming, not hop on a plane to Barcelona. You know, these are real things that impact your life. It's not just the job and the work and the stress of being on call isn't just the moment you get paged and fixing up the problem. It's the knowledge that that can happen at any time and that kind of impact on your life. So like we found it personally important to recognize that. And also, I think there's kind of weird problems that can be introduced when you link on-call compensation with like with being paged or with like time. And we didn't want that to be the thing that we wanted to optimize for. And the easiest decision was to simply have a flat rate regardless of whether you're paged or not. It makes things simpler. (laughs) You don't have to count up a number of engagements or anything like that but also recognizes the the overall impact that being on call has on someone's life. And I know like even today, despite claiming that I like on call and despite having done it uh, a lot over the last decade or so, um, I still like don't sleep as well when I'm on call, (laughs) no matter how much practice I have with it. Well, some people listening to this may be thinking, wow, that sounds like a great model. And others may be going through trying to figure this problem out right now and appreciate this advice. You mentioned that your approach feels generous compared to other models you've seen. And you talked about the different ways you can sort of calculate the compensation. Can you just briefly outline some of the other approaches you've seen that are different than yours? Sure. So time off in lieu, if it's enforced, I guess, can be a good way of compensating. or And you want to make sure that people are rested if they are engaged and on call. And like taking time off during the week or, or, being, or getting half days or whatever is kind of appropriate for um, the, the company. It's a nice way and, com- and is common enough for people to do on-call work and effectively get compensated with time off for it. Um, so that, that's common enough. Uh, I think some of the problems are that it reduces capacity. <laughs> you know, you're, you're kind of losing your in-office hours or your, the time when you want people to be working together and as a team. And so that can be pretty disruptive. And I'm not saying that we want people to be not rested or uh, like completely worn out by doing on-call. Like we, we do want people who are on-call to take adequate time off. And if they have to not show up to the office, then, then that's the case. But I think just doing time off on its own can have some kind of problems, but obviously it's cheap. <laughs> um, and so that that can be uh, a way of getting it if budgets are a problem. It's, it's something that maybe managers can kind of solve for themselves. Other ways of compensating is getting, getting compensated per outage or per event. There's problems there around gamification around <laughs> and also having to track the engagements. You know, it, it is work to track how many hours people put in and you can you just know that there's going to be spreadsheets and people asking about things. And uh, so it, it is fair in a way to compensate people for like the hours. And I guess maybe if you have a culture of that or other systems in, in work where you're dealing with kind of hourly elements or time-based elements to your work um, or shift-based elements already, then I can see how that makes sense for many companies. But that's not something that we kind of had any any experience of or any kind of systems to work with. So I think those are kind of two of the most common ones. but really we went for the one that i think reflected the way we work the most and what we and also the the easiest to administrate <laughs> in general do you think all companies should compensate engineers for on call or do you think there are cases where that doesn't make sense for the business for certain reasons or due to the type of process that is implemented certainly in like a early stage startup i wouldn't expect it uh, this kind of 
you know, the nature of the beast is that uh, you are like five people in a room and the servers go down, then like somebody will respond to it. And but on, on the other scale as well, like if you're if you're working for Amazon or whatever and you're doing 24-7 on call, it's like you're gonna expect it's going that's gonna be well built in or designed into the the system, designed into how the company works and operates and stuff. So there's a scale really from one place to the other. Um I think in in Europe, I think it's difficult legally not to compensate in some ways for on call it or at least it needs to be very much well designed into the, the employment contract and certainly can't uh, would can't be as easily rolled out as kind of the process I described. And so I do think it's real work. I think the it can be recognized in other ways, like, you know, in terms of performance and people's impact in the organization. And those things can be as important as the actual monetary compensation. You know, one thing we were wary of our risk with their compensations as strategy was avoiding people getting kind of too addicted to the the on-call compensation. And uh, we wanted it to be meaningful that people would know that it exists and like they could go away for a nice meal or something like that. Uh, but what we kind of didn't want was people paying for their groceries <laughs> or, uh, you know, it, it being a structural part of their income that they depended on. And so, you know, you have to balance those kind of things. You have to balance how important things are to the company and the nature of the job being done. You know, Intercom is a, it's important that our service works, but it's also not mission critical in a bunch of ways that other companies' uh, infrastructure doesn't work as well. So we had a bit of latitude that maybe other places wouldn't. So I think these things kind of influence the compensation structure as much as how generous we were feeling when we designed it. Well, it's clear that compensation for on-call is a complex issue, as, you, as you've described here, uh, and bringing up problems like gamification or structural reliance on that income. Those are all really important considerations that I think listeners will be able to take away. Taking a step back with this on-call process you've landed on, do you feel this is suitable for all companies or you know, how does it compare to other on-call processes you've personally been a part of? What's sort of your sales pitch or argument to, for listeners as to whether they should or shouldn't adopt a process like this? Sure. So back when I was young and naive, say 2018, 2019, when we started telling the world about this amazing on-call setup that we put in place in Intercom, I was doing evangelizing, like I wrote a blog post and gave a few talks and uh, started having conversations with people in different companies who were interested in rolling out on-call or fixing on-call in their places. And it suddenly struck me uh, once I started actually talking to people that like the a bunch of the solutions I had in mind or uh, that that I thought were great <laughs> were actually only realizable or, or were just artifacts of Intercom's particular culture or tech, like socio-technical environment. Uh, and that there were so many other factors involved that to design an on-call setup um, in any environment just needs to be cognizant or conscious of the requirements of the environment. So the business requirements, but also the the architectural layout and uh, how people work, how work is celebrated, all that stuff uh, has to be taken into account. Now, it doesn't mean that change is impossible, that you can't introduce new ideas, new concepts. And I think I ended up not recommending specific things to, that you should copy necessarily, but more like taking away some of the approaches or kind of higher level things that we were trying to solve. I think the act of 
deciding that on-call isn't something that kind of rules you or that like your operational work um, is in control and taking control of that. That's way more important than say, say even like the compensation, the specific compensation strategy. I think like copying and pasting Intercom's approach probably can work in, in many companies that have maybe similar scale or culture or whatever, but, but chances are you need to kind of figure it out from scratch and do it uh, with the, the particular company in mind. So I'm kind of less encouraging for people to copy and paste, like I mentioned, but to have this, uh, a similar kind of zero tolerance or, or ambitious approach to be able to improve things, because that's ultimately what got us to have a successful setup um, in, in Intercom. Well, your advice to listeners to not blindly copy and paste, uh, but to understand the principles behind Intercom implemented sounds uh, reminds me of this conversation I just had on this podcast with someone who had worked at Spotify. And he came on to talk about how you know, so many companies copied and pasted the Spotify squad model and similarly ran into a lot of challenges with that. So hopefully this conversation and, and that prior episode will sort of reemphasize the listeners that these approaches, as awesome as they may sound, shouldn't just be blindly copied and folks need to really figure out their own solutions based on their their own context and, and business requirements. I want to ask you, since sort of evangelizing this and writing about it and doing podcast guest appearances like this one, what's changed more recently? I know one thing you brought up was that you'd recently spun up an on-call process for your security team. Love to hear more about that and any other more recent changes you guys have made. Yeah, so we've been happy with the volunteer model. It's gone down well and in the incident commander area. And when it came to designing a setup for security, we also kind of, basically it's a good starting point. And we we knew that there was a good chance that people would uh, get behind us, mightn't struggle uh, to, to get people involved and stuff. Uh, the problem was quite different though in security. There are security events happen um, and there are occasions when you've got some maybe a potential breach or maybe a customer who's got some problems or there's log4j, <laughs> it uh, needs updating <laughs> everywhere on the internet. And, and in those kind of events, they're kind of special. They're like more like incidents and you escalate wildly and bring in whoever needs to be brought in. But the security case for us in Intercom, where we're at at the moment, is we certainly don't have like a 24-7 security knock with people in a room with loads of big screens and maps of the world and all that kind of stuff. Rather, we needed eyes on a bunch of signals, you know, a bunch of inboxes, a bunch of like certain types of alarms that mightn't be pageable or mightn't be so urgent that we need somebody to get out of bed at three in the morning. But you do want to have somebody at the weekend checking that everything's okay. And so what we noticed was our head of security was kind of regularly doing this and he had just taken out that his job was to check on everything all the time. <laughs> and uh, that's great. And, you know, it worked up to a certain point. But we started to feel sorry for him and reckon that he needs to take breaks from time to time. And that this is like work that is good to be shared as well across the team. It's good to standardize this kind of stuff. It means that like getting control of the signals and understanding what types of security events kind of need escalation and documenting these things and all like th these are all good mature things to put in place as, as you get bigger so we put in place a volunteer 
on call, not quite on call, but like weekend and check of where you do a sweep of a bunch of inboxes, bunch of signals, um, and do a bunch of follow up. So I was on call for it last weekend. I think I had to send a few emails to like a few security researchers and look at a few alarms, but it wasn't like intercom was hacked. It was more just like looking at different signals and making sure that there was nothing going by that didn't need kind of more investigation. And, you know, it's no fun showing up on a Monday morning uh, when something's been broken, when there's been something going off all weekend or something that was flagged to you maybe on Saturday. And so we're just trying to avoid those. So different design, but, but still using volunteers and using some of the the same kind of qualities of uh, the on-call setup uh, that we do for paging alarms. Well, I forgot to mention this earlier in the episode, but I personally am a customer of Intercom and have been for a long time. So uh, hearing about that, what you just described was very reassuring. I want to conclude with a topic that we actually started talking about a couple of weeks ago when we met. When I asked you, what are sort of the big hairy problems with on-call that you're still figuring out, you see other companies struggling with, and you brought up that, you know, one challenge is this balance between the customer impact, you know, being responsive to customers and providing a great experience, while on the other hand, not burning out your engineers and having hundreds of people stuck to their pages. So I just wanted to ask you more about that and that journey of finding the right tolerance level and balance. How have you been navigating that at Intercom? Sure. So when we introduced our shared on-call, we did introduce kind of higher standards around the quality of alarms and try to introduce the concept as well of like paging alarms should not be on symptoms. They need to be on customer impact and trying to make sure that we're not just paging on things that might be bad, could be bad, or, or maybe are signs of something going bad, but but are like somewhat detached. So I mentioned earlier, like database CPU levels, like th- these things typically are a signal that something's gone wrong. But if actually, if high CPU isn't associated with high error rate for customers or a degradation in the performance or error rates or whatever, then it's completely okay to tolerate. It's 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 not something that you should be um, paging on. And increasingly, we've been moving more towards SLO-style alarms where we have, I guess it's even higher level than like kind of simple metric-based alarms of where we're looking for inputs or signals from our overall environments that maybe latent, that the experience of customers has gone bad and that uh, then we page on. So there is a balance though, or there's there's a bit of back and forth in that you sometimes want to know when when things are going to get bad or on the way to going bad. And, uh, you know, you don't want it to be the case that a customer is experiencing really bad stuff for an hour (laughs) before you get somebody to kind of take a look. But also, you don't necessarily want to get someone out of bed for maybe just one small customer is having a problem and because they're sending a malformed request to our APIs or something. Like that's something that's going wrong and they're having a bad experience, but it's not necessarily our fault. And it can be hard to kind of separate those signals. So really it's, so we haven't perfected it. There's not like one thing. It's like you kind of have to do it on a case-by-case basis, kind of examining individual alarms and things that go bad and looking for the highest level kind of approaches that we can to kind of recognize those things. And occasionally you have some alarms that you just trust as well, you know, that they, you know, when this thing goes off, it's it's actually pretty good signal. So yeah, we try and minimize those, but they, they, a few of them still kind of exist. You talked about SLOs and sort of inspecting the process on a case-by-case basis. 
I'm curious, at a high level, are there a set of metrics or signals that you're relying on to you know, fine-tune this balance at all times? For example, are you tracking, I don't know, support resolution satisfaction scores from customers versus internal developer burnout sentiment? Are, are there any concrete things like that you track, or is it, are you kind of feeling your way through it? We review these things constantly in, in terms of our availability metrics and our, we survey our on-call engineers around their experiences as well. Um, so we have an availability program and a colleague of mine, Hannah, she, she runs a program uh, with oversight of all aspects of Intercom's availability. And so the on-call, our incident commanders and internal and external reporting about how well we're doing in terms of whether our features are working and our SLAs and things like that. That's all kind of centralized there. And we've got a full-time TPM who who looks after this space. And so we survey our on-call engineers after every single shift to see what their experience was like. We tag all of our issues, if there are any issues with our problems with the quality of the alarms or the quality of the room books and things like that. So that generates data as well as kind of closing the loop on making sure that the product teams have action items to do as a result of alarms going off. And between, our, I guess, our availability metrics and our, the data that we have in terms of the on-call experience and even just like a, a, the number of engagements we have or number of incidents that we have, uh, these are all kind of numbers that we that we use to decide whether to like invest more or whether or to slow down development from time to time. So it's not as simple as like a single SLO that drives these kind of decisions um, it's a number of inputs with the experience of our engineers uh, being a large factor in there as well. But lastly, we're, we, we we do look at the customer experience and our, our kind of endpoint SLOs and stuff like that as well. Well, that's awesome. I, I didn't expect to learn so much when I asked that question, but uh, that was really great to hear about how you're systematically collecting feedback from developers about their on-call experience on an ongoing basis. Brian, this is such an insightful conversation. Really enjoyed the time. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's been great. I could probably talk about this for another few hours. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. As always, you can find detailed show notes and other content at our website, getdx.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Please also consider rating our show since this helps more listeners discover our podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you in the next episode.